when I was uh, seven years old, the, the pastor of the church that my family had been attending since before I was born was voted out of the pastorate because he was bussing in African-American children to vacation Bible school, and the deacons did not, uh, did not approve of that and gave him an ultimatum. And he chose to walk away from the pastorate rather than betray his convictions. And so uh, an occurrence that would be confusing for any seven-year-old was uh, made more complicated by the fact that in addition to being my pastor, he was also my grandfather. And so a place that had been a second home for me, a place that I was at all day on Sundays and most of Wednesdays and a lot of times... Uh, my grandfather would babysit me, which meant he would be working on his sermon and his study, and I would have the church as my playground. Um, and, I, and I knew every nook and cranny of that space. Um, all of a sudden, that became a, a place I would never be again. And uh, over years, vivid memories started kind of fading and really, really crystal clear images of different parts of that space and different moments of my young years started to become blurry. And about 15 years after that day, I showed up for my wedding rehearsal at Frost Chapel at Berry College. And I stepped out of my car and uh, I took a few steps and I was thinking obviously about the wedding. But after taking a few steps, I all of a sudden got this really, really crisp image of this little boy, the red blazer on, black bow tie, he had a little green New Testament, he was pretending it was a hymnal and was making up hymns that probably made no sense and were heretical. Um, <laughs> he was standing with a group of other kids uh, in front of the front doors of the church. The front doors were these large, solid, dark oak doors. The windows were stained glass. Uh, the, the patio in front of the, the front door was concrete, but it was bordered in brick. And bordering the church were boxwood bushes. Super crisp image. And I came back to myself and was like, what? Why did I just think of that? I haven't thought of that in years. And I looked, and beside Frost Chapel are these boxwood bushes. And I don't know if you know what a boxwood is, but it has a really, really sharp, distinct smell. And I'm apparently not around boxwoods very often. But that sharp smell of those boxwoods that I hadn't smelled in so long took me back to that place that I hadn't been in so long. Why did that happen? Uh, well, to, to get neurological for a moment, as uh, a good friend and mentor of mine, Heather Medley, says very often, what fires together, wires together. And what that means is, as you're going about your day and doing your thing, what you're unaware of is you've got you know, neurons firing constantly. And as you're making decisions and doing things, behind the scenes, all kinds of stuff is going on. And your sensory perceptions, what you see and, and hear and taste and smell and touch, 
Those things are happening simultaneously. And so over time, if those sensory things happen together at the same time, they're going to get connected. And so that's why if you are, um, if you're of an older generation and you maybe smell a perfume or a cologne that is associated with a former flame, somebody you haven't thought about in a long time comes to mind really quickly. And that happens with a lot. It can happen with something you see. It can happen with something you hear, touch, feel. But the strongest studies have shown over and over and over again that the strongest linker is smell that there's nothing that will bring you back like a smell. And I'm sharing that story not just because I like telling stories about my life, but um, as we are continuing this morning in our series on 2 Corinthians, the passage that we're going to be focusing on is talking about the aroma of Christ. Basically, that we're, we're supposed to smell like Jesus, which that sounds good as long as it's figurative. Um, we're supposed to smell like Jesus. And so if you'll, if you'll turn now, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to have it up on the screen as well. But we're going to be in the second chapter of 2 Corinthians. And as a refresher, again, we've, we're in the midst of the series on the letter, uh, 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote this letter around 60 AD. And honestly, the, the main purpose, it seems like, for this letter was for Paul to defend himself as a minister and his motives as a minister and the way he's going about things. Uh, there were a lot of people that are being critical of him. He was the subject of a lot of subtweets. There was just a lot of negative buzz about him. And he wanted to justify what he was doing and why he was doing it. And so um, we pick up this letter in chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved And among those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death, to the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to the task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would illuminate your word to us, and that this idea that sounds good of, of smelling like our Savior, that you would help us to understand what that really means, and that you would motivate us to move towards that, and uh, that, that you would put us on a path, as Polly talked about, a, a level path towards having the aroma of Christ, being at the essence of our being. Uh, we love you and thank you that your aroma is fragrant. Amen. So you may have noticed uh, the first couple of verses in that passage are um, some defending what he's doing versus people were confused about why he was leaving one place and going to another place. And so 
Paul is kind of defending himself. We're not going to focus on that. And the last couple of verses are similarly kind of defending what he's doing verses. We're going to hone in on verses 14 through 16. We're going to bring it up here. So before, actually, let's read this through one more time and then and then dive into it. So again, verses 14 through 16, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the, of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life, and who is equal to the task. So a confession before we dive into this passage, when uh, BP texted and asked if I would um, take this sermon, I was like, oh, aroma of Christ. That's awesome. I love to preach on that. And I opened my Bible and had it underlined. I'm like, yeah, I want to, there was a little note in my journaling Bible. Let me be the aroma of Christ. I'm like, oh, this is going to be so good. And then I read this passage and realized I had no idea what Paul was talking about. And I got really nervous because I don't have a lot of time in my week for sermon preparation. It's not part of my job. And uh, it's really convicting for me. I, I don't know about you, but as I read devotionally, what I tend to do, really unconsciously, not consciously, is there's a lot of sections that are very confusing, and I don't know what they mean, and I just kind of like skim past those. And then there's a phrase that sounds really good, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's good. And I just, you know, focus in on that phrase, even though what that phrase means probably has something to do with those things that I skated past. Uh, and so I'm usually just kind of subconsciously aware of that until I have to preach, and then it gets real. And so, um, so this is actually a really cool passage that now I kind of understand, and my hope is that you would as well. So in this section, what Paul is doing is he's actually pointing to a major Roman celebration called a triumph. And it's where we get our use of the word triumph today. So the, a Roman triumph with this, was this celebration where if a general, if a Roman general was, had an unequivocal victory, in other words, completely demolished an enemy that was foreign, not a civil war situation, but a foreign enemy, totally destroyed them, and at least 5,000 enemies were killed in a single battle. These are the criteria. If he did these things, he could petition to the Senate and request a triumph, and the Senate would vote on it. So if the Senate approves the, the triumph, what's, what happens is in the city of Rome, when the general and the army get back from their victory, there's a parade. So if you could imagine if uh, the Galactic Empire in Star Wars recreated the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, this is kind of the vibe we're going for here. So you've got the, the conquering general and his army, you also have captives that have been uh, taken captive in the course of the campaign and the spoils of war, and they're marching through the central streets of Rome, and alongside of them are priests, because it's both a political celebration and a religious celebration. And these priests are burning incense, and they're going down the main streets of Rome, and the parade terminates, it concludes at the Temple of Jupiter, up on this big hill. And the general gets off of his, uh, of his chariot 
and he goes up the temple steps and he, he makes sacrifices and burns offerings in gratefulness for this big victory. And so that Roman triumph is what Paul is using as a metaphor, as an illustration, to, which would be a very vivid picture for the people of the time because they knew what these Roman triumphs were about. And so now we're going to go back through this passage with some context for what Paul is actually talking about. So first, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So just in this first phrase, we've got, okay, the general of this triumph is Christ. And if Christ is in a triumph in the vein of the Roman triumph, it means he has had an unequivocal, absolute victory that is being celebrated. And obviously, in the context of Scripture, we know this is the heart of the gospel. Christ has had an unequivocal, universal victory over death and over sin. And so, Paul is saying that Christ is deserving of and is is walking in a triumph. And we are with him. But what role do we play? For a lot of years, most translations kind of insinuated that we were soldiers in the army. And I think we kind of identify that. We, I grew up singing, I'm in the Lord's army and uh, other militant songs like that. And uh, we talk about being victors and more than conquerors, and that feels very good. But pretty much universally, scholars agree that what the original language indicates pretty clearly is that we in this scene of Christ's triumph are not in the army. We are not the conquerors. We're the conquered. He leads us, always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. When I was first reading through this, I kind of glossed over that because what does it matter? We're in the parade. We We know where we're ending up and we're in the parade. What else matters? Man, it matters so much. Because if you put yourself in this context of this triumph, what does it mean if you're one of the soldiers? If you're one of the soldiers, it means that you have contributed to this victory, that you are one of the conquerors. And so this triumph is really about the general, but you kind of get some of this spillover glory because you are, you're with that general. You're one of the conquerors. What if you're a captive? If you're a captive, you're in the parade, you don't really want to be in the parade. Because for the, for the soldier, what changes in their life after the victory? Life goes on as normal for the soldier, maybe some more power, some more prestige. For the captive, what happens after the triumph? Everything. If they are going to continue to live, the captive has to completely assimilate to a completely different culture. They are no longer whatever people they were. They are now Romans. 
And if they're going to live a life that extends beyond the day of the triumph, they're going to assimilate to Roman culture. So when we read this passage or when we just kind of go about our days, if we associate ourselves with the conquering army, what that's going to practically look like for us is that as we associate with Christ, the conquering general, life goes on as normal, but with a little more power and a little more prestige. Got a little bit of a Jesus chip on our shoulder. And when I look around at my church, not in this building, but the capital C church, man, that's what I see. I see in social media and on TV and in articles, I see people talking as if they were part of the winning team. It's kind of like something I've been guilty of. I'm a big college football fan. And when the team that you root for wins a big game, you're like, man, can you believe we won? We won? What position did you play? How many tackles did you get? I didn't see you out there. Of course we want to associate with the winning team. There, we won. They lost, but we won. And so a lot of times as Christians, what we think it means to be with Christ is that we're on the winning team. And we get the power and we get the prestige and we get to look down our noses at the people that are not on the winning team. Can you believe that they don't get what it means to be on the winning team? But if we approach this passage and we approach our lives as captives in the triumph, What that means is that we have been captured by Christ. And if we're going to continue to be captured by him, our culture is going to have to change. We're going to have to submit to the culture of Christ. And the culture of Christ is different. And we can't totally expound what that means. It would take a whole sermon series to talk through what does it mean, what is the the culture of Christ. But I think if you sat down in one sitting and you read through the Gospel of Mark, which is a a really, I would challenge you all all of you to do that at some point, or any other Gospel, what you'd see as a pattern is that Jesus... Jesus showed up with subversive love. It wasn't just love. We talk about love a lot in our culture, but Jesus had this subversive love, this disruptive love. He loved in a way that broke laws. He loved in a way that broke customs. He loved in a way that made people very uncomfortable. He told parables where the hero was someone from a culture that everyone despised. He seemed to go out of his way to heal on the one day of the week that you weren't supposed to heal. He loved in a way that communicated that everything else was less important than the love. And so again, if if we're the conquering soldiers, we just have the same car, but we got a Jesus bumper sticker on it. 
But if we're captives, we are engaging in the world in a way and loving in a way that doesn't make sense. And I think as Christians, we do a lot of things that doesn't make sense to the world, but not much of it can be attributed to love. Precious little. But if we were going to be the aroma of Christ in our world, we're going to have to submit to the culture of Christ, captives. That's just one phrase. Don't worry, it gets faster. So, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. So we're supposed to be these little pockets of his aroma going out. And Paul does not really go into, and so if you want to be the aroma of Christ, do these things. He doesn't really go there. So we have to infer based on a very intentional use of smell. Anything could have been used, but smell, aroma, was used. So I have an illustration, but first I need some water. In the very early days of Seven Hills Fellowship, before the DeSoto Theater, we met in a ballet studio down the street. Some of you may have been at Footsteps of Faith yesterday. That's where we met. And before that, we met in the Pierce's living room. And in those very early, early days, um, I did not have a full-time job, and so I would kind of hang out with VP as his sidekick and do stuff, and he compensated me with, are you here, VP? You compensated with me with what? Burritos. That's right. <laughs> I did not prep him for that. That's just the real answer. We would do our staff meetings um, because our office was an unair-conditioned, unheated, and no electricity room in the ballet. You can ask him about it, also not exaggerating. So we would have our staff meetings at Moe's Southwestern Grill. So we would sit there, we would eat our burritos. Sometimes he would splurge for some chips and queso if I'd done a lot of extra work. (laughs) And we'd plan out what needed to be done. Coincidentally, in the midst of my um, Moe's for Pay endeavor with Seven Hills Fellowship, um, we, uh, we were expecting at home our second child, Selah. And if you have either not been pregnant or have not spent a lot of quality time around someone who is pregnant, one of the common side effects of pregnancy is an especially acute sense of smell. So on days that I was meeting with Brian at Moe's, um, I would walk in the door, and um, eventually what developed was a, a very fine-tuned process of Stacy pointing and saying, shower. <laughs> Before I even got within like 10 feet, like, you were at Moe's, take a shower. She was like, the smell of onions and peppers on you is just so revolting, like, while I was in the shower, she would put my clothes in the washing machine. I'd have to change clothes midday because they had been moified. <laughs> like every molecule of my clothing had just been saturated with the smell of Moe's. Stacey's shaking her head. She remembers the nausea that induced. So here's the big question. I'll, yes, I had to, would you like to list all the other things I had to do when I went to Moe's? 
it was an extensive process, okay? It was extensive. So here's the question. What did I do? What work did I do? What tasks did I accomplish to smell really mowy? The answer is I didn't do anything. I just, I lingered in mows. Just lingered. I don't recommend it. I lingered in Moe's, and as a result of lingering in Moe's, the aroma of Moe's was with me. And when I got around Stacy, she did not smell her husband. She smelled Moe's, and that was not a good thing. And it's true. Have you ever, ever spent time in any restaurant for a really long period of time? You get home, and you're like, You've, you've like picked up the funk of the restaurant. Spend time for a long period of time anywhere that has any distinct smell, and you will take on that smell. It's just how reality works. There's no getting around it. And so if you want to smell like something or you want to smell like someone, all you have to do is linger. That's it. It's almost passive thing. And so if we are going to be used to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere, what that's going to require is lingering in the presence of Christ. Not running through for a couple minutes first thing in the morning. I could probably dash into Moe's, get a burrito real quick and get out and get minimally funky. But linger. Linger in the presence of Christ is the only way we're going to get to smell like him. And the reality is these these two things, submitting to the culture of Christ as captives and lingering in the presence of Christ, really, they're, they're, they're backwards. Because to, to love with the subversive love of Christ, to, to really enter into the culture of Christ, that's not something we really have the capability of doing. It doesn't matter how hard I work. I'm, I'm not going to just muster up the subversive love of Christ because that's what it is. It's the love of Christ. It's not the love of Jeremy. It's not that Jeremy's love needs to become like Jesus's love. I need the love, the subversive love of Christ. And the only way I get that is by lingering in his presence. Because I, as I linger in the presence of Christ and his aroma starts to permeate me, that aroma is love. First John, that uh, Joel was speaking from earlier, First John talks over and again about God being love, not has love, not as good at love. God is love. So Christ as God incarnate is love. So if we are permeated with the smell of Christ, the, it's the smell of love undiluted. And if we, if we sit in that and saturate in that, we, we become enabled to then step out. And that smell, just like Moe's, that smell lingers on us. And we can live a subversive love that is the culture of Christ. So if we do that, what happens? 
We are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to the task? Back to the Roman triumph, when that incense was burning as the priests were walking down the, the, the road and at the temple of Jupiter, that aroma had a very specific meaning. And for the Roman citizens, it was the smell of triumph. It was the smell of victory. And so for a Roman citizen, that specific smell was a great smell. It was a victory smell. It was a celebration smell. But if you were a captive in the Roman triumph, that exact same smell was the smell of defeat. It was the smell of death. Same smell, victory, death. That's where the illustration kind of breaks down a little bit because we're captives. But we are captives who have been adopted. And so for us, the smell of the aroma of Christ is the smell of life. And when you spend time with someone who has been lingering in the presence of Christ... That person, you want to spend more time with them, but you're also reminded of the need to spend time with Christ. As an adopted captive, when we're around another adoptive, adopted captive that's, that's living the culture of Christ, of subversive love, that's lingering in the presence of Christ and smells like him, just like when I smelled the boxwoods, I didn't think of boxwoods. I thought of Mount Zion. I thought of Clint Bowling. I thought about justice. It's just a bush. And to anybody else, it would just smell like a bush, but that's what it smelled like to me. In that case, you're not smelling that person. You're smelling Christ, and that is life, because we have his life. And when someone who is captive but not yet adopted, is exposed to the subversive love, man, that's a good experience, but that can be a hopeless experience because it's foreign. It's a different culture. That looks really good. That smells really good, but I don't, that's not me. I don't have access to that. I don't know that. So if we linger in the presence of Christ and as we are saturated at the molecular level with his love and are enabled to to submit to the culture of Christ with subversive love and we walk about our day in Rome, Georgia, or wherever we go, for our fellow brothers and sisters, we will have a smell of life. And for those that are not yet brothers and sisters, it's a, it's a smell of coming death. Not the smell of present death, but coming death. But when you're confronted with coming death, there's no time you're more motivated to look for life. And if Seven Hills Fellowship is going to be a prominent part of seeing all of its communities flourish, it's not going to happen primarily through teaching. 
It's not going to happen primarily through advertising. It's not going to happen primarily through putting on great programs or concerts. It's going to be the individually we take on the aroma of Christ, and the aroma of Christ begins to saturate the communities. And brothers and sisters are reminded of life and drawn into that presence of Christ. And those that are not brothers and sisters are confronted with the absence of subversive love in their lives. We're in the triumph. Will we be soldiers? Will we be captives? Let's pray. Father, I confess that that I, it feels really good to be a, a, a conquering soldier. And uh, it feels good to know the right answers and to feel like I have the inside track. And that feels a lot better than, than being <laughs> a defeated one. And I ask that for me, Uh, First and foremost, but for all of us here, that you would convict us of our tendencies to act like we did something. That you would humble us. That you would teach us your love by giving us your love. Thank you for uh, the inexhaustibility of that love. Amen.